Our scripture reading from this morning is Micah 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be, ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. this morning, so I'm going to shift this thing over here. All right. Hey, thanks again for being here with us uh, this morning as we continue um, our Advent series during this Advent season. Uh, before we dive into Micah 5, man, I still, what did I do? That's good, man. I can't figure out how to loosen that. That's good. Thank you, Hannah. Man, I don't know what we'd do without Hannah. I don't know how any of this stuff works. I appreciate you. Yeah, yeah, Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. (laughs) Sorry, make it weird. Uh, All right. Hey, this morning, I am, uh, before we get started, I want to make a couple of Christmas Advent season related announcements. First of all, I want to tell you about some free gifts. Um, I want to share. Uh, just about a few books that we have on our resource table today uh, that we want to offer as uh, free gifts to you as part of our church. Um, The first two are ones we've talked about here for a little bit. So um, this book by Ray Ortland, it's called uh, The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility. We handed this out free at the start of our men's fellowship here early in the fall. But if you weren't a part of that, we still have some of these left. It's just a really um, significant book about applying the gospel in our fight against all forms of sin. That's available at the back table if you would like one of those. Uh, We still have uh, the Women of the Word book. If you sign up for uh, the women's reading plan that's going to start at the first of the year, if you haven't signed up for that, sign up at the table and get a free book here today. My last two books, um, if you do not have an Advent devotional for you or your family individually, uh, we really recommend Good News of Great Joy. It's an Advent devotional written by John Piper. Uh, We tend to hand these out each year. Uh, We have maybe six or seven of these this year. And if you or your family need one, it's not too late to dive in and establish a plan for uh, having a regular um, devotional, getting yourself, your family prepared for Christmas. So grab one of these today and utilize that. And then lastly, the one that um, is new, that is not one we've given out before, uh, we recently uh, made it a point to acquire a couple hundred copies of Gentle and Lowly because we wanted everybody to have this book. So uh, we, on the table, if you do not have this book, um, this book is written by Dane Ortland, and it is about the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. Um, It's talking about in Micah, uh, the first few chapters, we see that God is righteous and just, uh, but sometimes we forget that in Christ we see the fullness of Jesus and he is also gentle and lowly in heart and when we consider how we apply the gospel to ourselves sometimes we we need a clearer picture of that fullness of Christ so this book is available for every person I don't just mean one per family I don't just mean every adult if you can read and you'd like your own copy of gentle and lowly there's one at the back table and we encourage you to take one 
The second thing I wanted to say uh, just about Christmas is that we will not be meeting on um, the weekend of. Uh, so we, we don't we are not going to be gathering the day after Christmas. We do that each year. Our last service for the year, we will meet Sunday morning the 19th, and then we'll meet again that evening when we, we kind of do our Christmas Eve service the Sunday night before uh, Christmas. Excuse me. No, it's all right. It's all right. I can talk real loud if I need to. This is real life. This is church church planting right here. No no gimmicks, no fanciness. This is the real deal. You guys, write this down. There you go. Okay, I think we're good. If we're not, I'll just I'll just bail. I'll bail on it. But I just wanted to make it a point to let you know um, that is not an unintentional thing we do. The point of that is not simply just so it's not inconvenient, uh, but it's because it kind of fits in with the way we view Shalom Sunday, um, that coming together as the church gathered is important, but it's not the fullness of the church. There are other ways we worship together, even outside the building, and we want Christmas morning to be a time where you can worship and rest and Sabbath and be with your family and point your family to Jesus um, and just really not add another thing to the schedule. Uh, we know many people are gonna be out of town, you're gonna be celebrating, you're gonna drive long distances to do that, and we want you to do that, and we want you to encourage you in that, um, and we don't want anybody um, necessarily having to think about is the set list ready for tomorrow morning or things like that when they're celebrating the birth of Christ with their, their family. So this one time a year, uh, we encourage you to Sabbath that Sunday and just enjoy that time and worship Jesus intentionally in the place where you are. So we'll meet Sunday morning the 19th, and then we'll have that service Sunday evening. But over Christmas weekend, we won't be together. Uh, we will send you that week, if you're on our email list, a digital devotional. It'll be based on Micah 7, and it's aimed to hopefully help you in your personal worship and, and to lead your family in worship on that Sunday. Uh, we will be sending that out, uh, but then we'll gather together in the new year. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about that. This morning... Uh, we are going to um, be taking a bit of a transition in the book of Micah. It kind of started last week in Luke 4, Luke 4 and, and it continues full blast. You begin to see why we chose Micah in the midst of Advent as we enter into Micah 5. My, in Micah chapter 1 through 3, we see a God who is justly and righteously angry. And he makes that clear to his people. And what we see in the midst of that is not merely people that are sinful and people that are wicked, but we see people that are in need of rescue. And Micah chapter 5 transitions into the means by which God would rescue his people. I don't know if you've ever needed rescue, but in preparation for this sermon, I've thought about this quite a bit. When I was a kid, I lived in a trailer park here in Joplin, and my best friend got James. He lived just a few trailers down from me, and I loved James. Me and James played baseball together. We pretended we were, you know, Kansas City Royals and picked our favorite players. We hung out all, to, all the time. I knew the only different thing about James than me is I knew his family was Pentecostal, but I didn't know what that meant. I knew he had, couldn't wear shorts and his, his mom wore dresses, but I didn't know what Pentecostal meant. And then one summer, James asked me if I would go to church camp with him. And I thought, you know, he talked a lot about baseball and all the fun they had. And it sounded really good to me. So um, I went. I went to Pentecostal church camp not knowing what that term meant. And for the most part, it was everything James said it would be. I mean, we played baseball all day. And there were root beer floats. Like, you could have all that you wanted. 
it was a little strange that you had to swim with jeans and a t-shirt on, but I, it was kind of cool. I had never done it before, so I didn't think it was that weird. Like, baseball and root beer floats, uh, I don't mind swimming with my clothes on. And then in the evenings, things were interesting. That's when we would go to chapel and the evangelist would come out. And it was a little, uh, like, I had never seen anything like that, but from a guy, kid sitting in the back of the room, I didn't mind. I kind of thought it was kind of cool like man this guy's really excited he's jumping over things and he's sweating it's crazy um so the first couple of days it was all baseball root beer floats and then being entertained in the evening day three things got strange and it took a turn uh so apparently not a lot of kids who weren't pentecostal could be convinced to come to a pentecostal church camp I was one of the only ones that could be. And so apparently there were kind of a target on me. Like I needed to, before this camp was over, you know, be, be converted. Um, so on night three, I was kind of ushered forward to the beginning, to the front of the chapel. And the camp counselors became very convinced I needed to be baptized with the spirit. I needed to speak in tongues. And uh, I stood there frozen for probably 20 minutes. And eventually they got distracted and I snuck out of that chapel. I found an office. I wiggled my way in, in the dark. I found a phone and I called my dad, like, you gotta come get me right now, please. <laughs> like, base, baseball's over, things have gotten weird. And my dad did, man. I knew as soon as I got a hold of that phone, I was good, dad was gonna come. He drove in the middle of the night, he got me, and I, my dad rescued me. He did what I knew he would do. And uh, for many of us, we have probably a similar story, maybe not a similar story to that, but some version of that. You know, for my own girls, it was probably going to the deep end of the pool when they shouldn't have. And, you know, I jumped in and they, they knew that I would do that. And in many ways, that's kind of a picture of what Micah 1 through 3 is, that the people of God are drowning in the deep end of the pool that is sin. They're in over their heads. They have no hope of rescue. And our text this morning is a continuation of that which Luke's preached last week. Micah 4, 7, Luke uh, read this to us last week. And the lame, I will make the remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And Micah 4, after you know all of this prophecy regarding what awaits the just that awaits those outside of God, those who stand, the, what is even deserved by those who are God's people. Micah makes a startling, uh, just startling in contrast, the exclamation that a rescuer is in fact coming, that the truth of what people deserve is not the end of the story, that God himself is a rescuer and he will come. No more war, no more pain, no more sin. There is a king coming who will make all things right. However, Micah warns the people, that this king will not come in glory tomorrow. That in fact, tomorrow they're going to face humiliation and pain. In chapter 1 of our text today, 5-1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The truth is, Jerusalem would soon be attacked by a foreign enemy. In 2 Kings 18, we see the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. Not only would they strike and defeat Jerusalem, would Jerusalem be defeated, but Jerusalem's ruler is so weak that it says the enemy will strike him on the cheek. 
And this had deep significance culturally. Perhaps it still does have deep significance culturally. The idea of being slapped. This was an act of strength. And it was meant to not only show power, but to humiliate the one who experienced it. And this form of belittling is seen throughout the Bible. It's seen in 1 Kings 22-24, Job 16-10, Psalm 3-7, Lamentations 3-30, and perhaps most famously, this example is given by Christ himself in Matthew 5-39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. With this prophecy, Micah shows the weakness of the earthly ruler of Jerusalem. As strong and powerful as he might be, he is unable to do anything against the providential humbling of the Lord that is about to be rained down. Yet that seems interesting when we compare that with Matthew. Jesus says when we experience such humbling, such humbling that it's uncomfortable to even visualize in my head, like this king who has watched his people be defeated, then suffers the humiliation of being slapped across the cheek and just belittled in front of his people. And yet Jesus says for us, when we experience such humbling, we're to offer the other cheek as well. Why is it then that an act that is so humiliating to the ruler of Jerusalem seems to be some kind of badge of honor for you and for I? I believe that verse 2 is the answer to why that is. In verse 2, they follows up, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. The ruler of Jerusalem sought power in a worldly sense. But worldly power will always be conquered by the world. For the one whose strength is found merely in what they can muster up, there will always be someone who can muster more. And the Lord can conquer the world's strongest without the slightest of effort. And though this king is awesome in power and might, Scripture shows us that he is also gentle and lowly in heart. God's people knew the former. They knew God in magnificence. They might have just laid that out. The God who is just and, and demands that which uh, that, that, that sin be accounted for. They, they knew of this God. And that's what they expected. That's what they expected to come. God's, they, they knew this and they knew, they expected God to come and arrive in magnificent fashion, bringing down wrath. They knew this full well. But what they didn't know, what they didn't expect, was what's prophesied of here by Micah. That he would come to Bethlehem. That he would come to Bethlehem. That he would be born in a stable. That God who is magnificent and just and all-powerful, that he would be coming to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was like saying he would be coming to Granby. Like the, the savior of the world is, is coming to Granby? That cannot be correct. He's going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to set up his throne. He is going to reign in glory. He's going to establish his armies. What are you talking about, Bethlehem? But we see in Christ the fullness of God revealed. That God is both magnificent and authoritative and just, but he is also compassionate and grace-filled. 
In ancient Israel, this was a foreign concept to think of a king in such a way. A king served to rule over the people. In many ways, the king was seen as God himself. Many kings in these days actually identified themselves as gods. Unopposed to that was a priest. A priest, on the other hand, they were supposed to represent God for the people. Where a king represented God to the people, a priest represented the people before God. In February, we're going to spend nine months in the book of Hebrews. And in this book, we will discover what it means that Jesus became and is our great high priest. All of the crooked priests throughout the Old Testament are ultimately paving the way for this perfect king who is also our priest. These prophets and priests we've read about, we've even read about them here at the beginning of Micah, they were sinful, even those with the best of intentions. Some of them were incredibly crooked. And because of this, when they offered sacrifices for the people, they also had to offer sacrifices for themselves. But Micah is speaking of a ruler who would not be like these world rulers. He would not be like the king of Jerusalem sitting far away from the people. No, the king being born in lowly Bethlehem would fully know our weakness and our temptation. He would experience every trial that his people would, and thus... He would sympathize, yet he would never succumb to that temptation. He would never succumb to that sin that he might not only sympathize, but he might redeem his people. We can offer the other cheek to that slap of humiliation because we have been brought under the banner of a greater king whom cannot be overcome, one whose rule was spoken of from the beginning, from the ancient of days. In verse 2, we see the beginning of what is being laid out as the fulfillment of the story of God's redemptive promise. God's redemptive promise, the story of the gospel, starts with Adam and Eve. The world became dark. Romans 5 and 12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The truth is that in the garden, things turned as they should not have. That man and woman chose to worship self, chose to take up their own way above God's, to separate themselves from God and seek to take his place. However, God had a plan. He promised that one day he would send one who would bring light back into the world. One day he would rescue his children. In Genesis 3.15, we see this promise at the very beginning of Scripture. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We're promised that one would come, that would defeat the enemy that we see there in the beginning. And then in the life of Abraham, we see this promise continue. God promised Abraham that his offspring would be greater than the stars in the sky. And that through his offspring would come one who would make all things new. The world would be redeemed. And just as God provided a means to spare Abraham's son, one day he would provide a way to save all of Abraham's children through the one that would come from him. Jesus would become a better Isaac because he would not be spared as Isaac was, but he, being perfect and unblemished, would take the place of God's people, broken from the beginning. Abraham trusted the Lord 
And he knew this promise to be true, and he continued to believe, and he waited faithfully. In Hebrews 11, 8 reminds us of this faithfulness. By faith, Abraham, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham waited. He waited. And then in the midst of Israel, Abraham's family grew just as God said they would. The people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with God's people. The, star, the number of people that matched the stars in the sky, just as God had said. And the growing people, they desired a king. They desired a king more than anything and they asked God to give them one repeatedly. And the prophet Samuel tried to discourage them from this. He knew this would not go well. He feared that a king could be compromised. But the people insisted, and God would provide. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that they also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. People were tired of waiting on this perfect king. The waiting had been long. They needed a king here now. They needed, they, you know, you, they didn't want to go all as far as to actually create an idol anymore. They had grown past that. Let's raise up a man that we can idolize him instead. And initially Saul fills this role. He's a mighty man and he's kingly in, in appearance, scripture tells us. And he reigned for roughly 30 years. But in the end, just as God warned, he was not faithful to the Lord. The Lord then provides a king after his own heart. In 1 Samuel 13, 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It was not time for the perfect king, so God gave them a king after his own heart, a young boy named David, who was from Bethlehem. He would be a good king, but he was a placeholder. He would be a good king, but the world was still dark. God made a promise to David, a continuation of the promise he made to Eve and that he made to Abraham. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, When your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David was not a perfect king. He was far from a perfect king, but he was a faithful king. He recognized his need for a savior. Part of that was through his own sin and own destruction and God being nothing but gracious to continue being merciful to him in the midst of sin. David knew full well how dependent he was upon the Lord. And God promises that a savior would come from his family, that through his offspring, the darkness would be overcome once and for all. The light he believed would come. He believed and he praised God. In 2 Samuel 7, 22 through 24, David, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. 
And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. David was a faithful king, but he was not a perfect king. And almost three centuries after David was made king, a prophet named Isaiah would be instructed to share the great promise of, with God's people once again. And once again, after a long series of waiting, these people were discouraged. They had waited long, and God sent Isaiah to remind them, still, the light is coming. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And he will be far more than a king, because the world had seen those before he will be Emmanuel, God with us. In Isaiah 33, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. The wait would once again be long, roughly 400 years. But God would be faithful, and the faithful children of God would need grace as an aid as they waited upon the Lord's plan. Because the world was dark as in the world things were difficult Isaiah promises that he the child to be born though was worth the wait and God will see his people through and so we see the people of God they pray they pray and they wait and that's what they do Micah 7 7 but as for me I will look to the Lord and I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me they pray they cry out, I will wait for the God of my salvation. They pray and they wait. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And then their waiting ended. This morning, I wanted to I wanted to just look at these first two verses because I really wanted to I want to just take time this morning I want to take time just to remind you of your history of your redemptive history that what Micah's speaking of and in the next over the next two weeks we're going to spend three weeks in Micah 5 Brandon and Holland and I and uh, but today I just want to remind you that this this truth of Micah 5 1 and 2 the one who is to come through Bethlehem, the humble king, the perfect priest who will come, that promise has been long awaited and was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You have a long heritage as those called to pray and wait and trust in the Lord because he is worthy of waiting. But this is difficult in a day where so much else occupies our life. We have so much else that we, we want to base our lives around. We have this short window of life, and it's hard to believe that I'm just supposed to wait faithfully during this season because the world offers me this. The world offers me this successful career. They offer me this new thing, this goal that I could strive to that seems far more appealing than the goal of waiting faithfully for my Savior. And this has long been a difficulty amongst people. I'm going to share with you a fancy term this morning. Copernican heliocentrism. It is the name given to the astronomical model developed by Nicholas Copernicus and published in 1543. This theory that was created by him, which we now know to be more than a theory, it changed the world as we know it in 1543. His theory 
position the sun near the center of the universe motionless with earth and the other planets orbiting around the sun. This sounds basic to us today, but it changed everything in 1543. The people of the world did not respond well to this news because people had always thought the world was the center of the universe and it was incredibly controversial and difficult for them to find out that they were in fact not the center of the universe. This is the reason we make a big deal out of this Advent season because Advent is intended to reorient our hearts to the real truth and wonder of the gospel. The good news that God made a promise and he has kept that promise. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that that promise, something Micah didn't know, like Micah didn't necessarily know how this promise was going to go in its fullness, but we as those who now know the truth of what Christ has done, we have all the greater reason to hope. Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season for wonder. Yet we wait and wonder as those who had far more than Micah had. Micah was a prophet, and he didn't know necessarily the fullness of what we know. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 tell us, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That Micah knew that the Savior would come. Micah didn't necessarily, I don't think he did know there would be two advents. I think Micah probably still thought that the, the fullness, that, that, the one, that the final advent we await would take place. He didn't know. That was kept back from him. Micah knew a Savior would come. And he knew that he would come from Bethlehem, which I'm sure was striking to him and probably began to make him question the nature of this advent. But he didn't understand the full nature of his arrival. Michael likely didn't, he likely didn't know there would be two advents, two comings, and two these long seasons of waiting. But we wait as those who know Jesus, as those who have been given the very gift of the Holy Spirit, who no longer wait alone. But we wait as a spirit-empowered people who have all the more ability through Christ to wait and be faithful. Right now, this day, you have a million things to do, I have no doubt, as the calendar begins to strike down. But please don't miss out. Even over these next few weeks as we come together, do not miss out on the purpose of this season. Allow the Spirit to do his work and to reorient your lives around Jesus. Allow your plans and your longings to be reoriented around expectation for the return of Christ. As you sit and look at the lights, as you delight in the laughter all around you, allow yourself to sit and wonder at what awaits those of us who have been redeemed by our perfect King. When our Redeemer returns, all will be made as it should be. And this is a season of recognizing that though we are called to wait, we wait with incredible hope because of Jesus. I'll share with you a quote this morning as we close. Eugene Peterson wrote a, a book called God With Us, Rediscovering the Meaning of Christmas. And a quote from his book goes like this. Wonder is the only adequate launching pad for exploring this fullness, this wholeness of human life. 
once a year, each Christmas, for a few days at least. We and millions of our neighbors turn aside from our preoccupations with life reduced to biology or economics or psychology, and we join together in a community of wonder. The wonder keeps us open-eyed, expectant, alive to life that is always more than we can account for, that always exceeds our calculations, that is always beyond anything we can make. This morning, um, I just want to uh, pray um, a, a blessing. I want to I pray over you. I want to pray over myself um, that we might, by the power of the Spirit, do just that. Um, would you join me in that prayer this morning? Lord, thank you for this day, um, for the opportunity to come together um, as a people and uh, to turn our gaze to you. Lord, thank you that you provide us this opportunity each and every week, that you've set aside a day uh, that we might come together and we might worship corporately, that we might uh, lift up our heads together and be reminded that we're not, we're not alone, that uh, we're not in this by ourselves, that the story of redemptive, redemption is a, is, is a personal story, but it's also a story of your people, that we've been made a part of a family. Lord, in the midst of this season where we celebrate family all the more, would we be uh, reminded and would we grow deeper in our love uh, for this family that uh, you have get, uh, given us and made us a part of through Christ? Lord, I uh, ask you, I ask you in the name of Jesus um, that you might um, bless uh, the people here in this place um, with just clear eyes to see you during this Advent season. Lord, we, I, I, we recognize um, the world uh, does its best uh, to distract us during these days. They, they have done their best uh, to make a season that's about you, about them. They have done uh, their best to uh, masquerade um, as, um, as, as caring about, uh, about this season in a, a special way. And, and they've made it, Lord, about um, good feelings and, and material things. Um, Lord, we keep us from all of that Lord pull us back and bring us back to the truth of the hope we have in Jesus Lord would our would this season um, would our worship would our devotion uh, would our time with you um, just be saturated in um, gospel centered wonder Lord you, you love us you made a way for us you made a promise that you've been faithful to keep. Centuries long promise. You've called us to wait and um, in the midst of our waiting to delight in and be content in you. Lord, thank you that even your waiting is not, uh, it's not, in, it's not in vain. We tend to, Lord, I, I tend to see waiting as, as irritating, uh, but yet you uh, have redeemed waiting. And you call us to wait for a purpose that we might be prepared for that which you have for us. Lord, help us to wait and to wait well and to wait worshipfully. Help us to devote our lives to being a people who are committed to pray and wait, eager to be with you once again. Lord, would you do these things? Would you use this Advent season uh, to do a work amongst these people whom you love? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.